Welcome back to the Price Well Podcast. I'm super excited about this podcast because we've been talking about these ingredients from Neurotoss for a couple of years, but we finally have the guy on behind the whole thing, Neil Foster. Uh, it is August 2nd. It's 10 a.m. for us. I think it's a different time zone for Neil a little bit, but we're getting together to talk all things Neurotoss and Pepe Strong. So, Neil, I want to say, how are you? I want to ask all about where you came from, but overall, I think people should know the subject of this podcast is what is Pepe Strong? Uh, thanks for hi, joining us. Hi, Ben. Hi, Mike. Great to be here. Thanks for having us. Um, I can't take the credit, uh, which you uh, unfairly gave to me. So there's a, a huge team behind us up at Neurotas and, uh, and and the brains behind the whole organization, the founder and CEO, Dr. Nora Cowdy. Uh, but but hopefully I've played my little part as well. So uh, appreciate the acknowledgement. Absolutely. Yeah, we've had a, a few really fun calls where we've gotten to talk about uh, the team, the products, uh, our excitement about it. Um, but we've been talking about this ingredient for... I'd say twice as long as we've known you. So it's it, it's been really exciting to learn about this fava bean extract, to see it grow in the marketplace so much, um, and, and to just kind of uh, watch as a muscle builder gets accepted a little bit more, which is it's not something that happens really like every year. Like muscle builders are kind of a controversial topic. Um, and obviously there's a lot more to this than just strictly vanity needs. But uh, I'd love to hear about the background behind Neurotoss and how you got to the point of this AI-driven muscle builder. Sure. Um, so, and, and just a little bit about myself as well, because I, I hear exactly. Yeah, let's get Neil yeah. too. Right, but I hear what you're saying, because I've, I've been involved in sports nutrition um, since kind of fresh out of, out of uni and, and studying nutrition. Um, and yeah, I mean, it was, it was protein, it was creatine. Um, HMB kind of came into the scene around that time as well. Um, but, but there's not been very much new and on top of that as well. So if you look at the shelves and the products that are out there, it's pretty similar. So whilst my own career kind of went off in a few different directions and we're bringing in AI, we're bringing in new technologies, I'll tell you all about that. Um, it's great to be back in sports nutrition and it's actually great to have something which is new and that I look back at now. My athletic days are a good bit behind me, unfortunately, but I was like, where was this when, when I was training harder when I was playing more sport and everything else. So, um, so yeah, it's great, great, great to be back in sports nutrition. It's great to bring something genuinely new, genuinely exciting. Um, and to have the longevity, hopefully of all those ingredients as well. Right. So, um, of, of the proteins of the creatines, good science is good science and ingredients with good science shouldn't, shouldn't go anywhere. They should hang around for, for forever. Um, so in terms of, of Neurotas, uh, Neurotas is a Dublin Ireland based. So it is my afternoon here. Uh, biotech business effectively so we're interested in peptides so i have to correct you there ben peptistrong is a peptide network that's how we refer to it but those peptides are hidden within the proteins that exist within fava beans uh, and and that's really what we're doing is we're taking technology ai we hear all about it all the time these days but we're applying that to look within the large protein structures of the natural world. So that's food proteins that we eat and delving into those for these little secret nuggets of genomic material, bioactive material that's been hidden there for very specific purposes through evolution. And now with the way that technology has developed, we're able to find those. And that's re the real difference of, of the past few years is that we've always known there's good stuff in food, but actually locating it and finding it is the is the real challenge. All right. I want to ask a, a kind of a question that it may be very basic, but I think that a lot of people listening to this podcast will be familiar with like basic nutrition and they might be familiar with like chat GPT when it comes to AI, right? So 
uh, I think a lot of people are wondering how is there an entire company surrounding around this this AI? Like, are, is there a command console where you guys asked, "Hey, uh, Neritas AI, can you give us this peptide network?" How does how does that process start? Just kind of give people like like a starting sort of, of where this comes from. Yeah, so um, it's a bit of a molecular biology one hundred and one, or a kind of evolutionary biology one hundred and one. So on this planet, at least, everything is coded by DNA. Every living creature, animal, plant, um, microorganism, etc. We're, we're all written in the same language, which is the language of DNA. Um, and the way that DNA works, communicates and instructs different processes is through protein to protein interactions. And what we're most interested in, and this is really important because it's why AI is so applicable to, to what we're doing, is these small proteins, peptides. So we've heard about peptides for a little while, um, but never really to their full potential. These are effectively really smart signaling molecules. So if we think about ourselves, we could think of ourselves like a, a book. So we're written multiple chapters, paragraphs, sentences, all lovely and complex because us humans want to think that we're the, the most complex thing out there. But that same language, uh, a microorganism is written in, a plant is written in something else. So peptides represent the words of that. So we've got this big old dictionary of words. We, with our technology, Neurotask, can go into the encyclopedia of a plant, extract a word, which is an instruction, and effectively then insert that or feed it into a human. And that instruction will still make sense because it's this universal language of life and language of biology. So where does AI come in? Imagine you haven't got a single book that you're trying to find a word in. You're looking in a library of various different encyclopedias. Suddenly you've got trillions of words and you've got to find the right word and you've got to find the word that will be understandable and uh, it, it is going to be relevant in the human. So if you really kind of want to uh, simplify and put it into a metaphor, we've got this huge library of encyclopedias and we're looking for the one or the two or the three words that are going to have these tremendous benefits to us humans and our health. And you can't do that manually because you'd have to sit in that library, you'd have to read through all those books, you'd have to find that word, and then you'd have to go off and test it and validate it. And um, most of the time you'd, you'd come up short, you'd be like, this isn't the word we're looking for, back in and trying to find that. So what technology, processing speed and all that power enables us to do is effectively find that word, find it really fast um, and then also sense check it. Is it going to work? Is it going to make sense? And we can accelerate a lot of that process so that we can do what would take traditional kind of pharmacological scientists and uh, and those types of businesses who've, who've been doing this for a long time. It would take them decades to find a single new ingredient or new active. We're able to do that process and validate and prove that it works within about a 12-month period. And that's really where the AI comes in. Uh, it's all around recognizing the potential based on existing literature and what's known, and then going to a huge data set and finding it in the real world. So let's using an example, I'm, I'm wondering whether there's a chicken and egg kind of situ situation. I want to upregulate mTOR signaling, for instance. Um, is that like all you tell the AI or do you need to have more, more snippets of information? Like we have an idea that it is this molecule or this protein or this mechanism go find things that deal with that? Like how, how vague of a question can you give your AI? Uh, yeah. So you can, you can come about things in a few different ways. So um, a lot of the times um, and in a kind of pharmaceutical world, it's a bit of a nail and a hammer approach, which is I have a very specific target and I want to hit that target. 
And then you typically, you're very much thinking about structure and you're thinking about molecular modeling. And we can do a lot of that activity uh, as well. And in some projects that makes a lot of sense. What you're describing there, Mike, is probably the better question, which is, I don't necessarily know how I want to achieve something, but I know what the output I want to have is. I want to have, not, not even maybe upregulate mTOR. I don't necessarily care about mTOR. I want to have more muscle or I want my mm-hmm. recovery processes to be right. quicker. I want to generate protein synthesis. And that is a much wider search term because you can look at everything in those areas. So you can you can you know look at different mechanisms that could all be interacting, of which mTOR is just one of those. Um, so that's the type of approach that we took with Peptistrong, and it's the approach we would use a lot of times, which is asking those more general questions and saying, you know, what's known? What are all the molecules out there that are having the, that positive impact? And then what a computer, as opposed to a few PhD scientists are able to do is it's able to start to look at all the shared characteristics, everything that goes within that huge amounts of publications and literature and start to pass through that and come up with predictions, guesses uh, for a a human of, well, which molecules do we think will have that effect? And then where the magic happens for Neurotas is guesses aren't good enough. You then come into the laboratory and and we've got our full um, cell culture lab in-house in Dublin, Ireland. And we validate and we test those predictions in relevant assays, generate even more data. So if we're starting at the tip of the pinnacle of all the world's existing human knowledge in a subject such as muscle gain, that's where we start. And then we start generating additional predictions on top of that, test those to stand on top of that mountain and build a new mountain there. So it's a constant uh, iterative process. um, And that's described as machine learning. That's kind of a term, term that people here these days and, and learn about, but you're applying me- machine learning to biological processes like how do we build more muscle? Excellent. Okay. So I guess I'm, I'm going to veer off into a marketing question right now. It's obvious that you're making the AI part of things like kind of your introduction into this. Um, do you, do you feel that that's fully necessary? Obviously it's a core part of your company, but uh, the consumer, they really just want to build muscle. Do they do they care that where it came from or how it was discovered? Uh, or would they just be satisfied knowing that there's new fava bean extract and you, this company over in Ireland just keeps magically finding new stuff? You know, like, um, I guess the question is, yeah, why why are we making AI such a part of this story? Yeah, um, consumers, I don't think they do care. I think they want the best results. Uh, and, I, and what I love about mm-hmm. the the sports nutrition industry is that um, you've got a, a bunch of consumers who are very critical. They do a lot of reading around. They want to know what's best. They want to know what's new. They like to experiment on themselves and see how it's working. Um, I mean, ultimately, if you give that consumer base something that works, they'll they'll, they'll love you for it. Um, and quite rightly. Um I mean, what the AI does is means we can do this again and again and again. And that's really important for us as a business. And you know, we want people to understand that if a product has a Neurotas ingredient in it, then it's going to be good, right? And that's the kind of the halo effect that we're trying to build in there as well. But ultimately, to a consumer, it doesn't matter how it's found. What matters is, does it work? Is it clinically proven to work? Uh, and all, all, all those elements that we have to do as well. So AI does not bypass any of that stuff. Um, you need to you need to get in the in, in in the clinic. You need to prove the ingredient is working. And from a consumer's perspective, they want to they want to feel it working or they want to see it working in the mirror. Gotcha. Okay. And so in uh, some of your your materials, you call it the magnifier, magnifier technology. Is that anything you need to explain at all? Oh, I'm pretty pretty self explanatory. So um, we're talking about peptides here. 
peptides are small fragments of proteins hidden within larger proteins. If you eat the foods, we're talking about fava bean in the case of Peptistrong, but other ingredients come from, from other food or plant materials, you do not get those benefits. And that's really key because the little proteins, the little peptides are embedded within these larger protein structures. What magnifier signifies is, is a, as it sounds, a, a, magnoscope, a, a mag magnifying glass or a, or, a, or a microscope that lets us look deeper within that. We use special processes, enzymatic hydrolysis, to chop out those large proteins to release those really specific bioactive peptides. And it's only then that our fava bean peptide network has this activity. And it's brilliant. We've got this clinically shown. We've got different studies uh, looking at muscle protein synthesis. Fava bean protein does not drive muscle protein synthesis. Peptistrong drives muscle protein synthesis four times that of a milk protein comparator. So kind of it, it couldn't be plainer in the literature as to the difference that uh, peptides over the whole foods make. A magnifier is all about us going deeper and finding stuff that's hidden within that and then releasing it or unlocking it to have its effect. Awesome. So I, I may have missed this. You, you've identified a peptide network that you want, and it happens to be in fava bean. Was that part of the AI too, is like telling you where it's easiest to extract, like where in the literature we've seen this and possibly that's... Okay. Yeah. So go back to that metaphor in the library. Um, you know, Father Bean is just one book within that library. We we didn't open up all the books. The AI is directing us to, there's a book over there. It's never just one peptide. It's That's why we call it a network of peptides. There's a number of interesting words to continue the metaphor that are found in the Father Bean book. So this should be what we, this is, should be where we're looking at. Uh, something I, I liked about the magnifier um, is it, it actually wasn't all that intuitive to me. The, the thought of like how you get that out of the food, I think, is a foreign concept to most people. I think most consumers are just consuming supplements and not thinking about how it is actually extracted. Um, my question for you guys is, was during this process, were there any other sources of this uh, peptide network that you guys looked at during the process? You will not find the exact network in any other plants. We did have a, a short list. We had a couple of interesting materials that we took forward. But of course, we're only interested in bringing the best one to market, right? So so, so Peptistrong and Fava Bean is, um, is, is the best peptide network for increasing muscle protein synthesis and uh, reducing muscle atrophy and all the kind of benefits that, are, that, that we've proven in it. Awesome. Um, Mike, I don't know if you have anything else that you wanted to talk about in this section, but I would like to get into the studies that Neil mentioned, especially the human. Yeah, studies. I think it's 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 time to understand the Pepti Strong itself then. Yeah, yeah. So, <clears throat> Neil, there was uh, when I, I, we have to give a shout out to Glaxon, who brought Anomaly to market with Pepti Strong early, um, but it was mostly cell data, although we were understanding at the time there was human data on the way. So I don't know if you want to start off with the cell data or if you want to talk about the really compelling human data, but if you could, if you could take us through like the studies that you guys had uh commissioned on that that'd be great yes and i, I do want to talk about glaxon as well like because they they kind of took the took the chance i guess you could say on this and uh i think that's that's worth a shout out so i'd like to kind of hear about the process of working with joey on that as well because we've had him on the podcast yeah. talking about ai as well so but yeah first let's let's kind of hear about these uh studies and these ingredients yeah and and just to answer the the, the last question first um, yeah, we, we had a lot in our pocket data wise, but this a lot of this was happening in the absolute midst of, of COVID lockdowns. 
So uh, clinical trials during lockdown, especially the kind of clinical trials that require the subjects to come back into the clinic when you're meant to social distance and all sorts of things uh, are incredibly challenging. So, so you know, we were, we were sat on a lot of good information and good data, but we weren't necessarily able to finish some things off or go through the whole publication process. So, um, so, so yeah, that's, you know, I have to say kudos to, to, to Joey who, uh, who we know well and uh, and obviously very fond of. Um, he he kind of got in there first and could see what was what was coming quickly down the down the, the funnel. Um, so in terms of uh, yeah, so when we start with any ingredient, a lot of the work starts in vitro. It starts in in cell based assays, and we had a number of different. Um, because we, we wanted to take an approach to muscle health that isn't just driving muscle protein synthesis. And this is where a lot of existing ingredients focus. Um, it's like a, a car, um, the, the, the muscle protein synthesis is like the accelerator. Um, but as we age or if we're overtrained or um, lifestyle habits and a whole bunch of things, you can't just press the accelerator down further faster if, uh, if, if the engine's got other issues. So you need to kind of address the whole system that's, that's in place there. Um, so we had a, a number of different um, target assays and target benefits that we, we wanted to hit, which is why this fava bean peptide network is so unique, because it's flicking a few biological switches as opposed to just this single target. Um, so we, we did a lot of work uh, in, in cell-based assays using muscle cell lines. Uh, one of my, my favorite kind of piece of data and um, a result that we can show from an in vitro perspective is looking at muscle protein synthesis. Uh, and there we take a, a muscle cell, we effectively feed it the ingredient uh, and see the amount of, we talk about phosphorylation of S6, um, which is a, a subunit one down from mTOR, which is really what mTOR drives in, in your muscle. So are we going to actually produce more protein in the muscle? Because that's why we want to stimulate mTOR in, in this type of area. So um, we've got a really nice kind of data there that we're looking at whey protein. I come from a background in sports nutrition. Um, I love whey protein. We haven't got bad things to say against it. It is the gold standard in kind of nutritional protein supplement. But what we're able to show is that we significantly increase muscle protein synthesis above whey protein at a hundredth of the dose. And this is really key because Peptistrong is not a better protein. It's not how we're positioning it. It's not what the science tells us. It's not what it was designed to do. What it does is it sends an instruction to the muscle cells, to our muscles, to increase muscle protein synthesis. It's not just providing the nutritional building blocks to do that. So this is really fascinating because kind of traditional protein quality and, and protein science would say it's all about protein quality and specifically in muscle health, we tend to focus on branched chain amino acids and, and leucine uh, in, in particular as to one of those. So if we're putting a hundredth of the protein plus it's a plant-based protein, so we typically assume that to be far inferior, um, there's no way it should be outperforming whey protein. So that was like a really important um, first sign and result to us, and it carries through the other data that we've done as well. So it's just, this is not another protein, this is not a nutritional source of proteins, this is something that is an instruction kit to go with your proteins. Okay, but it, if I were to have a tub of just Pepti Strong and I sold it as a protein, it would be labeled as like, would it be labeled as dietary protein technically? Yeah, I mean, technically it is dietary protein, um, but but, okay. um, but that's, that's a labeling right. element as opposed to uh, really capturing right. the core of it. And and we've given um, some, Joey some some kudos, which I'm delighted to do. Um, we should also look at uh, at our, our newest partner, GNC 
who have actually launched a product. Mm -hmm. I think Ben's already covered it, where we're taking an advanced whey protein isolate and pairing that as well. So that's really going to the, um, the, the building blocks and the instruction kit all in one product as well. And that's very much how we see um, the Pepti Strong's use. It doesn't have to be supplemental protein. It could be your dietary protein as well. It's helping or instructing your body how to use the protein that you, you, you can consume. So, so back into the studies. So we've got two human clinical studies that are completed at the moment. Um, so the first one of these was an immobilization study. And uh, this was our first study with Peptistrong. And what we were keen to do is exactly what I've just said. We've got sat on this really interesting result about increasing muscle protein synthesis above and beyond whey protein. So we want to prove, one, that we do that within the body because things working in cells and in vitro, that's you know relatively common. That's great. But we need to prove that they work in a, in a human scenario. So we wanted to extrapolate that result and kind of put it into a human format and really disassociate or separate what a protein does to what peptides do. So in this study, it's done at Maastricht University, um, and it's a, an immobilization study. So we got a, a bunch of, uh, of male uh, subjects, and we put one of their legs, each subjects, into a full leg cast. So that completely immobilizes the muscle. And when you do that, this is evolutionary programmed. If you can't move the muscle, you will lose the muscle. So that's hardwired, hardwired in uh, evolutionary reasons because muscle is really energy expensive. So we don't want to be feeding, wasting calories on preserving muscle that we're not able to use. The body will just start to break that down. And there's no therapeutic, there's no nutritional intervention. Nothing will stop you losing muscle in, a, in, a, in an immobilized situation. And when you immobilize a muscle, uh, so this could be if you go into ICU or it could be if you're playing sports and you get injured, fracture something, get put in a cast, um, three things you want to watch and three things happen. So the first thing is muscle protein synthesis. And that's really like a light switch. So immobilize the muscle, it just switches straight off. When you remobilize the muscle, it switches straight back on. So it's just really immediate, off, on, uh, and you, you know, can do that multiple times uh, and, and, and it will always kind of bounce back. Then you have muscle mass. So muscle mass, we lose pretty rapidly. So this was a, a seven-day period of immobilization, and we lost about 5% of, of the muscle mass in that leg. So it's pretty rapid, happens pretty quickly. Anyone who's broken a bone um, or, or had ligament injury, unfortunately, probably knows how quickly we start to lose, lose muscle. And we gain it back relatively fast. It depends who you are. So if you're a kind of young male testosterone field doing physio or rehab or back in the gym, you will gain back that muscle relatively quickly. If you're at the other end of the spectrum, female kind of post-menopause after a hip replacement, that's a real problem area because that muscle is going to be incredibly difficult for them to, to, to gain back. Um, and, and obviously there's a continuum within there. So, you know, most of us are all in the middle there somewhere. Um, so that's muscle mass. But then this third thing, which is actually probably the most important thing is muscle function. So again, to put it in a sports um, analogy, you know, you've got a, a well-liked or well-known sports superstar. They break a bone on the pitch. They go into a cast. They will be back in the gym or back playing, and they will regain the muscle that they lost long before they get back on the pitch. And that's because the actual the muscle function, um, the, the way it's able to react, the tensile strength, everything that goes with that takes much longer to come back. 
So that regaining of muscle function takes longer than the regaining of muscle mass, which takes longer than muscle protein synthesis, the on-off switch. So in this study, back to it, we've got 30 subjects. We've got each one of them with a leg in a full leg cast, which is going to start to lose muscle. And then we're looking at these different outcomes to see the different effects that we're having. And we're trying to see, are these peptides, do they work differently to a protein? And the results speak for themselves. Um, so they absolutely do. The big key findings for us are, well, the, 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 the key one is this muscle protein synthesis result. So during that period of immobilization, muscle protein synthesis in the immobilized leg pretty much switches straight off. And we see that really clearly in both groups. Once the cast comes off, the subjects have a two-week, we call it an ambulatory recovery period. That means they're not doing heavy weights or some kind of physiotherapy protocol. They're just back walking back to their usual activities. And we see that the PeptiStrong group has four times the muscle protein synthesis rate. So we call that FSR, which stands for myofibrillar synthesis rate, going on than this milk protein concentrate group. So that's like an absolutely inexplicable finding because it just shouldn't happen. Milk-based proteins are meant to be the best out there. This inferior plant protein, if that's what it was, should not be having anywhere near this effect. So this was incredibly cool for us and it exactly supported from that in vitro and from the AI and the prediction strategy that we followed, that we want peptides that are sending those instructions to increase muscle protein synthesis. So it's a really, really cool finding. Obviously, to a consumer, it's back to your point, Mike, do they care about the AI? Well, also, do they care about muscle protein synthesis rate? They probably should, but you can't see it and you can't feel it. So yes, I know I've got increased muscle protein synthesis, but what does that mean? What can I feel? And the, the great thing that we're able to show in that study is that not only did they have this massive increase, is that they fully recovered muscle strength in the two-week period of recovery, whereas um, the milk protein concentrate group was not able to fully recover. So there we've got a functional output that the users can see and feel, as well as this kind of great uh, what's happening within the muscle readout as well. Now, I'm not sure if we can claim the statistical part of things, but I, the number I have is 103% strength recovery. So that mean they, did they actually get stronger than when they started? Uh, or Yeah, I, we, wouldn't, we, we wouldn't go so far as to look at that. We've got some extra data and some extra clinical okay. and, and the next clinical, we're seeing a really interesting result there. And we know, we know they, they fully recovered. Uh, the, the measure of strength we're looking okay. at there is, is, is leg press. So, so the data is the data. Uh, but but really at this point we're just we're just you know we're delighted that they recovered and that's that would be the main thing that we're looking for. Obviously this is immobilization, um, but right. but we shouldn't look at this in just immobilization. So the second trial we've done is exercise recovery. So typically there's there's two things that damage muscle. Um, well three things. There's acute injury, but we're not we're not doing that, and we wouldn't get ethics approval to uh, to actually hurt people uh, in, in a clinical study. Um, so there's exercise injury. And then there is this immobilization or, or disuse injury, and that's leading to this, this muscle atrophy. So what we've done in our two clinical studies, we haven't talked about the second one yet, is we've, we've shown that we help recovery from the main challenges because PeptiStrong is all about priming and uh, amplifying um, the muscle's process. So it's doing the right thing. So the, the machinery, the engine of the muscle is working effectively. Um, so, um, so, you know, that's, that's what we're trying to establish, establish here. 
healthier muscle is going to recover better. Um, and, and from what we see, Pepto Strong seems to make muscles healthier. Do you have any um, theories? This is slightly off topic. Any theories of like g- overall general wellness? Maybe it's associated with muscle health. When I'm on Pepto Strong, I just feel better in general. I don't know if anyone else has commented that. And maybe it's because I'm like not as ragged and sore. I've been, I've been hitting it pretty hard. I got a couple of races coming up. Um, it's noticeable is what I will say. So I don't, I just feel better. Is, is anyone else kind of saying this? Uh, so, yeah, I mean, that's, we talked about it again with the AI, right? And, um, you know, who really cares? And they care about results. And more so, if you can feel something, then, then that's really, really um, just, just, it gives you the reason to believe. Uh, I, I, I used to play a lot of sport, um, kind of semi-professionally, quite competitively. Uh, these days, I'm a very bad runner. Um, and I, I know instantly whether I'm, you know, I'm, I'm using Pepto Strong. I have got my, uh, my, my own supply uh, stashed up. And as soon as I run out and need to go back to head <laughs> office to, to, to get more Pepto Strong sent over, I feel the difference in my recovery. And this is something that we're hearing um, pretty pretty frequently from from people who are, who are either working with Pepto Strong uh, or using Pepto Strong. So so definitely that kind of um, that overall, you know, we talk about recovery, and, and typically we tend to think of it as a very acute. You know, I did this, and I want to recover specifically from that. But you know, we're in constant challenges of our energy of our bodies uh, and our muscles and everything that we're doing. So, you know, I, I, when I talk about recovery, I'm not kind of saying thinking recovery from that bike ride I did or from that run. I just thinking, you know, recovery from everything is, uh, you know, when you wake up and wake up in the morning, you know, how much of, of the, 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 the hangover, not alcoholic based, but hangover from just the activities and the stuff I did yesterday, even if that was just sitting in a chair all day um, on a, on a, on a laptop and, and working away. So we definitely get that. We see some, uh, some really interesting results in that second study around um, muscular endurance or, or fatigue uh, to put it from, from the other perspective as well, uh, which, which seems to back that up. So I think that's quite a recurring recurring theme that we're, we're, we're hearing and we're seeing. Yeah, I think recovery is a little too often thought about uh, like in the acute, like that, you know, that uh, anabolic window after the mm. workout where you're, you know, you're taking your protein that moment, um, which it's funny because Pepsi Strong has been put into that with GNC's protein. But um, I feel like incredible if I can use uh, Anomaly for me. I use it every single day and it's just a status that I have over time. Like it's just, I perform better. I feel better. I, you know, I wake up in less pain, you know, kind of your, your hangover that you're talking about. Like, I don't, I don't know if there is anything in terms of um, injury prevention, but I, I feel like I just function a lot better as an athlete when I'm using it regularly. And, and what we have to remember with, with, with muscle. And it's one of the reasons that, you know, we have this, this AI platform, we could go into any area of health. So, you know, why did we go into muscle as one of those first areas? And we are in plenty of other things and you'll see lots of other ingredients from us as well. But, you know, our muscle and particularly our, our, our skeletal muscle, it's a huge part of who we are, right? It's a, it's a huge collective organ. It has a massive effect on our immune response. So we talk about myokines, which are um, um, muscle-related or exercise-related signals that come out some of them are, are for immune response and recovery but but send messages to to our brain um it's why exercise is so good for our mental health and our mental well-being and our cognitive decline so this muscle it's our it's our energy reserve it's where we store our glycogen our carbohydrates to fuel our brains and, and everything else that we're doing it's uh, an immune reserve it controls our metabolism because um it 
maintains our basal metabolic rate, so how many calories we're burning, where all our sugar goes. So, you know, the sugar that we eat, is it is it you know, coming in, um, get, spiking our blood sugar levels, affecting our level of kind of lethargy. So so muscle is like, we, you know, we think about muscle and uh, you know, particularly maybe in the sports world, you know, it's, it's aesthetics, it's how we look. Um, and obviously that's cool. And, and, you know, we all want to look better and we want to support that and be able to function better, but it's just massive part of, of, of who we are. Um, so, so yeah, I think there's probably a lot of, you know, we, we talk about a number of areas of science where we're learning so much more of the interplay and the interaction, but I think it's, it's, you know, it would seem pretty reasonable that, um, being healthy and having muscles in good shape are going to have knock on effects kind of all through the body and everything that we're doing. Cool. Neil, it's okay to admit that the sports nutrition part of the industry is by far the best part of the supplement <laughs> industry. So that's also that's also why we're here. But it does seem like with the current data you have available, um, it this would be an incredible ingredient for aging population. Um, although obviously it, it seems like at least from our perspective, maybe you have other marketing campaigns going on. You're targeting uh, a younger population right now with it. So are how does that how does that work? Are you are you targeting the the seniors out there, or is this just uh, sports nutrition just leads the way? It just seems like with a lot of innovation. Yeah, I, well, I, I said I was delighted to be back in sports nutrition, uh, having kind of started right. out my my career twenty odd years ago in sports nutrition, and I mean it's just so innovative, fast. Um, a, a, a you know a customer base, a consumer base who's willing to try, but also as I say, very very critical, but. But is able to, you know, think and has, you know, we have some wonderful thought leaders in the area who educate and help people understand ingredients better, right? Uh, I, I, I see, Mike, you'll uh, you'll agree with that part. So it's just it's a very good area to to start. When I started in sports nutrition twenty years ago, um, selling tubs of protein powder, you wouldn't see someone with a shaker on a. I'm from London, so on a tube. Um, having protein in public view, right? If you went into the office, I worked in the sports nutrition office and still not everyone um, was probably consuming kind of supplemental protein in a shaker. Um, the majority were in, in, in that workplace, but in the general public, it wouldn't happen. Now, if we go just down a supermarket, every single aisle of the supermarket, every category has protein fortified options or has products that are saying, well, you know, look at our protein content, whether that's, you know, normally occurring or they've actually fortified with protein. And so many of these trends that make it into mainstream health have, have started in sports nutrition. So it just seems to be the entry point. It's the most willing consumers, the most, you know, say maybe the, the, the smartest or the most um, uh, forward thinking consumers. And then it gradually uh, get, gets through as well. So that makes perfect sense. Absolutely. We have big plans for, for PeptiStrong in the aging nutrition area. That's the area with most need. If we, you know, we don't need to pack an extra ten kilos of muscle on uh, on an athlete, uh, a sports person, a bodybuilder, etc. Um, you know, that that's not going to uh, do great things for humanity. It's not going to save the world. But globally, we've got this huge aging population. Big issues with loss of independence uh, that come with losing muscle. So um, you, you you get become frail, you can't leave the house, you can't interact socially, which then has other knock on effects in terms of mental health. So there's a huge problem there that we absolutely want to be a, a, a part of the um, the solution for. Clinically speaking, it takes a little bit longer because when you're working in an 
aging population, you can't just run a study and say, well, we've gained more muscle in a short period of time. You're typically looking at kind of trials where you want to show you haven't lost muscle over a period of years. So that's just, it's a longer, it's a more expensive endeavor, but um, but absolutely that's that's where we're headed as well. We always look at muscle health as a continuum, kind of young sports nutrition, muscle growth on the far left of that. And then at the far right, you've got that clinical, frail, sarcopenic type audience as well. But we, we're all looking for better muscle health and we would all benefit from better muscle health. Cool. Um, so let's talk about, uh, application of the product. Um, you know, when we were talking with Joey on their podcast in April, um, we talked a lot about how a lot of people use it before bed. I, I take mine before bed just cause it's easy to remember. But, uh, I think in the second human clinical study, you guys were actually dosing it out pre-workout. Um, but now there's also a protein, which would lend to kind of like post-workout is, you know, from Neurotas' standpoint, is there a recommendation on when you would take it, how you would take it or a dosage or anything like that? Yeah. So, um, and we haven't gone through the second study yet, but um, in in that second study, we're giving 2.4 grams of Peptistrong. We've put it in capsules just because that's a nice, easy way. And it's very easy for, for the subjects, for the administration of it. So everyone knows I've got to take five pills in that case. And and uh, and then that that's done. Um, I think the, the main thing here is to go back to the fact that it's not a nutritional product in terms of uh it's not going to be you know, 2.4 grams of of peptistrong is about 1.6 grams of total protein and no one in the history of sports nutrition has ever promoted a 1.6 gram load of protein to do anything and this is just again another one of those proof points that shows we're not working by any kind of nutritional um, typical amino acid means um so we're giving that um in the morning to be honest, because that's the easiest way to get the participants in your clinical study to make sure that they don't forget. Because if you tell them to take it before bed or something else, ultimately they, they end up forgetting. Uh, and then your, your study results, you, 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 just, you lose uh, the effect potentially. So um, we, we have them taking it in the morning. But so actually we're not, we haven't done enough and there's more work we would potentially want to do and will do in the future around timing and around um, doing around sport, be that before, after, during, etc. Um, but ultimately, the way we see Peptistrong working and the way that our studies show this working is that it's it's priming the muscle and improving the way it responds to what we'd call environmental stress. So that could be exercise, that could be the immobilization. So in our second study, we do a 14-day, um, everyday kind of, I wouldn't call it a loading phase because it's the, the regular dose, but it's it's almost like a preparation phase before we have this exercise challenge so basically it's just making sure and maybe it doesn't need to be the 14 days it's just that's the length of time we've done in, in that study but by doing that it's primed the muscles so that when we gave them this exercise challenge they're able to handle it better than the placebo group who weren't given peptistrong so um we're not entirely sure how important the timing is but we, we know and we feel very confident if you get your 2.4 grams of Peptistrong in the day at whatever time, it's still going to be giving and preparing the muscles and priming the muscles to, to respond better to those, again, as I said, the environmental challenges. Okay, cool. So yeah, for the record, I, I take a pre-workout just so I don't forget. So <laughs> I try to keep it around the same time every day. A lot of these, a lot of times when we're, like, when we're writing about something, um, and this would obviously at 2.4 grams, you're going to have multiple capsules. I oftentimes just recommend split doses just in case, 8 a.m., uh, 8, 8 p.m., and then 
um, to, to keep it flowing every 12 hours. I'm not sure if that's really needed as like, it's more of a signaling thing, but sometimes that's just a general recommendation too. But if you're going to forget every PM, just, just get it done with, you know, like, you don't want to yeah. miss it's uh, a completely agree and um uh, and and yeah for the record because you shared mike I, I take mine post-workout um just because that's when i i typically would knock back a protein drink as well so uh it just it just kind of serves to uh to remind me to to, to do it then um but yeah also i think the we always with a with a meal is quite useful um but uh but not not required um, it's not one of these things that you need to avoid um, taking around food or, or, or anything else than that. Just because, again, peptides, they're the language of the biology. Our bodies know what to do with them. So um, so that means it's its less important around the, the, the timing and the and, and the dose. So then there's no, if you're formulating a supplement, there's no like absorption type of stuff that does that matter to you a lot like intestinal absorption or what if my like gut health is just awful no no and so I, that's a a really good good question um and, and actually you know, it's the kind of bit we we don't necessarily spend a lot of time explaining to consumers um but as part of that ai process and the the early phase we, we we're really focused on the output which was increased muscle protein synthesis and the, these other benefit areas but um, a lot of what goes into the technology is also ensuring bioavailability as well so that we're not wasting time. And that's where technology can be really good because we get our, our, our list of prime targets, uh, um, our leads. But we also want to say, well, which ones actually aren't going to be bioavailable? So um, we've done a lot of work and published on the fact that our peptides withstand digestion are not just bioactive, as in they increase muscle protein synthesis, but they're also bioavailable as well. Awesome. So just to reiterate in that last study, so you, they, Pepti Strong wasn't taken just before the, that one test the day's workout. It was taken 14 days, but then on test day, it was not taken. Yeah. Is that so, kind of right? Yeah. Or? Let me take you through that one. Okay. So the second, so we did this first study showing the difference and um, separating proteins from, from peptides. The second study was a, um, we call it an exercise insult or an exercise challenge study. So here we're giving 2.4 grams of Pepti Strong. Um, in capsules, just to keep it nice and nice and simple, uh, in the morning with with first meal of the day versus a placebo. So it's a placebo controlled um, randomized study. Um, they come in day zero, and we are taking baseline strength. And the way we're collecting strength and thinking about strength is we're using a measurement called peak torque, so the maximum amount of strength that you can produce. You do that on a leg extension, so it's called an isokinetic uh, dynamometer. And, and the good thing about that piece of kit, unlike doing a bench press or doing a squat, there's no kind of technique or other um, uh, kind of elements in that which can make it more challenging or you can improve upon just by sorting your technique out. It's a really true measure of strength. So we take their baseline and then we send them off for 14 days with either their Peptistrong capsules or with a placebo, which is just uh, an inert fiber that, uh, that, that's often used uh, as a control. 14 days after that, they come back in and we put them on the same piece of kit and they do a series of eccentric and concentric leg extension movements. So they've just got one leg which is strapped in and it is absolutely horrible. The test is designed, it's, you know, it's not it's not like a you know getting on the leg extension and doing a, a, a hard leg day. It's that times 10. It is designed to cause as much damage and therefore delayed onset muscle soreness in the quads as possible. Um, you, you're, you're hobbling out of there and you're hobbling for a, you know, for a couple of days. That's the whole purpose of the study. It's also why you can't do a crossover design because 
the subject won't come back in to to do it again on the other leg or to uh, to try it with the other one. So it's it's really nasty, um, and uh, and yeah, it's 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 not something you would volunteer for. At least you don't volunteer for it twice. So uh, you're right though. So then well, yeah. fourteen days of taking pictures. <laughs> I, I really in the morning. want to come do this. Yeah, well, okay, well, we can we can invite you around, Ben, uh, and we can do some muscle biopsies as well because they're they're really fun as well. Um, so I, I'm not the, I'm not interested in that one for the record. No, okay, no biopsies. Um, so. You're quite right, though. They came back in um, on on for the for test day, and they were fasted, so that we're trying to balance all the the kind of the the, the different factors out there and make sure that uh, everyone's coming in in a very similar fashion. And they performed this exercise insult, this exercise challenge. Then they they go away. They they have their meal after after that training session. They take their Pepsi Strong then. And they've got two more days where they're continuing to use PeptiStrong as, as per the standard recommendation. And then we bring them back in again at three days. So we've got a 48-hour recovery test and a 72-hour recovery test. The recovery test, we're looking back at that peak talk. So effectively, what you expect to see here is we've got a baseline level of the strength that they have. You give them the exercise challenge. That's just to absolute failure. So we don't care how well they do in that because some people are stronger than others. Some people have a higher pain tolerance than others. That's irrelevant. What we want to see is at 48 hours, you expect their strength to have gone down because we expect them to, to be in too much pain and have too much muscle damage that they can't apply the same amount of strength. And at 72 hours, you know, you're kind of starting to hope you're on the road to recovery. Um, but when I get into the results... Um, we saw a little bit more than that, or quite a lot more than that. So as expected, 48 hours, we're seeing that um, both groups have lost strength. Pepsi Strong group is looking better than the placebo group, so we're really happy about that. But where it gets really interesting is at 72 hours. So at 72 hours, the Pepsi Strong group have fully regained their strength plus. So hopefully we'll put the graph up on the screen while I'm, while I'm saying this, but we're seeing a really nice force amplification effect. Um, from the PeptiStrong group, and we, we're not seeing any of that from, from the placebo group. So for us, this is really clear. And when we look at the whole kind of area of recovery, we're seeing that the PeptiStrong group has a 54% increase in recovery performance to the placebo group. And that's a really important stat because this is a pretty silly test of how much can we damage your muscle and how quickly can you recover after that. And that's not what happens in the real world. In the real world, we're playing team sport and we you know, have a couple of training sessions and a match session, or we're going to the gym, lifting weights, and we're not training, you know, we might train to failure, but we're not training to the point of muscle damage and, and, and overtraining. So in those, it's all wow. about those incremental gains of recovery. Maybe Ben is by the sound of things. Well, well I, you know, I, honestly, like the sports teams doing two days, um, military applications, like, yeah, they kind of are destroying themselves yep. pretty badly. I, I mean, this, yeah, you get roughed up. This is, I mean, this is, this is similar to, uh, we had a podcast with Sean Bear a couple months ago with my, my HMB and we were talking about sometimes some of the studies on HMB didn't show as great of gains because the, the studies where they showed the greatest gains were, they were beating the shit out of these people. They were training them really freaking <laughs> hard. And I think that that's just kind of part of this industry is like, if you, if you're going to study hypertrophy, if you're going to study training or adaptations, like you have to have, you have to be training hard. Like, and that's, I think a realization that most people come to understand in their athletic pursuits is some people just don't train hard enough. That's it's a, I think it's okay. Okay. So this study, 
I don't know if you had a comment from what Ben just said, but this study, is that this a like clinically validated uh, method that's been done before? Or did you kind of just make up that? No, no, like absolutely. It's, it's, it's um, yeah, it's this, this method, the test, the, the the piece of kit that's used to do this is um, used in a lot of the kind of top physiological physio- physiology labs ar- around the world. Um, it's a published study and, and we've got some kind of great feedback from the academic world as well on this study. Um, I can also tell you it's not easy to impress you know the likes of even Joey's very very he went very fast but he's uh, he's incredibly critical in terms of the science uh, the team at GNC equally um, so you know this 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 is a really great paper really great data um, and 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 it's not even finished actually Mike as well because I think this was a point to to, to Ben's comment there um, and also really what PeptiStrong is doing and, and, and why that dosing and that priming effect comes in. So it's great that we had this functional output, but it's always nice to understand why you're having that and, and getting kind of deeper into that data as well. So in addition to the leg strength um, that we were looking at, we're also looking at what is happening and the signals that the body is, is sending. So we call these myokines. I mentioned them earlier. Um, these are kind of messages from the muscle. When you train the muscle, when you exercise the muscle, various signals telling the body we need to recover, we need to repair the damage that's been done here, uh, but also having other physiological benefits as well. And um, there's a few of those myokines where we're seeing some really interesting results. So the first two that I'd probably like to call out are, are IL-6 and IL-15. Um, these are really well known. They're, they're, they're pro-inflammatory. And sometimes when we think of things being inflammatory, we think bad and we think anti-inflammation good and pro-inflammatory bad but but actually no we you know we want an immune response immune response is very healthy it's what causes that positive adaptation from training you do some damage your body says hey i don't want to do this again i need to get stronger i need to get better for it next time up so il15 and il6 are pro-inflammatory they're effectively that that response to exercise telling the body we need to we need to adapt we need to recover and we need to adapt so what we see through this priming effect by, by feeding PeptiStrong for the 14 days prior is we see a big spike in those. So as soon as they come off the isokinetic leg extension machine, as soon as they've done the exercise challenge, the, the response is, is amplified. Um, and then the charts I'm looking at, it's at zero hours. Yeah, so that's zero hours. as soon as they come off. Basically immediately, yeah, exactly. immediately after the so, exercise. So basically we're amplifying the effect of the exercise done, but then they drop straight back down again because we don't want to chronically uh inflame anything or have this 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 chronic effect we just want to amplify the 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 acute and the the right um response and those are responsible for a whole bunch of things like um uh, muscle protein synthesis um feeding more glucose into the into the cells because muscle cells need glucose just to run all their processes as well we're not really just talking about glycogen there but just energy for the cell um uh, all, all sorts of you know cell proliferation and, and, and elements that are really important for the recovery process. So we see that amplification effect and then down. We've got things like fractalkine and irisin. Um, again, really, really, I mean, a host of different benefits. Um, irisin in particular crosses the blood-brain barrier, which is you know being now considered as, as, as potentially a really important molecule there in terms of why exercises seems to be so beneficial for our, for our cognitive health and our cognitive function. So some really interesting things going on. But to Ben's point uh, around that kind of overtraining or when you're getting really beasted and like the military example, Mike, is a, is a really extreme one. We also looked at some of the myokines that would be considered like the bad guys, the negative guys. And the one that always stands out there, and if you've been in sports nutrition for a while, we've, we've kind of seen it come in 
into fashion, go out of fashion, come back into fashion, but it's myostatin. Um, so, so myostatin exercise is inhibitory to myostatin in the general sense. If we exercise throughout our life, we'll have um, lower levels of myostatin than if we don't, if we're more kind of um, stationary. Um, but this type of overtraining event causes a big spike of myostatin in the um, in the placebo group. And we see that we've kind of really um, knocked that out. So we see a little rise, but but hardly anything in com- comparison to the placebo group. So for me, that's all about avoiding that overtraining. You know, train as hard because the way that machine is, you can't take it easy. You, you're, you're pushed to the absolute limit till, till, you, till you reach failure and beyond, but just not making that an overtraining event. And that's really exciting and interesting when you think about the athletes or military personnel who are wired the way you're describing, Mike, because they're going to push themselves to the absolute extremes. But there is always a downside of that. You know, you can only do it so many times. You can only do it for so long until potentially there's a risk of injury or illness or something else. So if we can reduce the risk of that overtraining effect, I think that's that's really interesting. So knowing what we know now, or and I, I guess, yeah, we could use the word no. Um, so at, if you wreck someone, wreck their leg, at 48 hours, they're going to be better off, but still hurting. And then at 72 hours, most people at least, it, it turns out that they get, they're stronger than when they started, um, or at least they've recovered. They've over, I don't know what the right word is, over recovered. Like maybe you could re- re- correct what I just said, but knowing what we know about that, what's the next step? Obviously at some point we're going to want to see like a study, eight weeks, 12 weeks of actual building muscle and stuff. But, um, the 72 hour window thing seems important because I think we might be able to jam more volume in as well, which also could indirectly lead to, to better gains, better endurance, better everything. So, um, so I guess properly explain the 72 hour thing and then tell me where we go from yeah. there. Yeah. I don't thank you for that question because I don't think today we can properly <laughs> explain that 72 hour thing. And when we're talking about the 72 hour thing, okay. we're talking about this big, what we call it described as like a force amplification. So there's more force that they're able to apply. There is more strength there. Um, I, you know, I think that was, uh, if, if anything, you know, not necessarily a finding we were expecting to see. It's very welcome. Um, but I can't say that we necessarily fully understand that yet. Uh, in terms of your point, I mean, when we think about what have we shown clinically, what do we know so far? We know we increase muscle protein synthesis in really quite a, an inexplicable fashion to a, to a high degree. We know we're reducing this kind of overtraining effect. So things that typically break down muscle tissue, such as myostatin being one of the ones we've mentioned. We know we've got all these additional recovery benefits that are all associated with increased muscle protein synthesis as well. But our, our, our two clinical trials are around environmental stress, immobilization and exercise. So, and over a, a single bout. So if you tie all those things in, so if you have an increased muscle protein synthesis rate and you have that over an extended period, everything in the literature tells us you are going to gain more muscle. So, so that, you know, that's pretty, pretty widely understood. So now we have to prove that. Awesome. Awesome. So, um, I don't, I don't, I don't know if I have any other serious questions. I'm kind of digging through. We do have an article here. We're, we're going to update with some new images and uh, this video as well. And we're going to have a full show notes and everything. So if you break your leg, it's probably not a bad idea to, yeah, to try this ingredient. I know you're not targeting that demographic, but like, so a lot of times we see, uh, yeah, actually I do have more questions. Okay. So a lot of times we do see joint supplements. Like if you just, some joint supplements are for like ongoing joint health. Other joint supplements are like, I just got injured and everything. And it almost seems like this would be 
pretty smart to use in the I just got injured case. Not that this is going to help you uninjure yourself, but it possibly could help you. You're going to be doing less load. It could possibly help you retain a little bit more muscle or at least a little bit more strength. Um, there's some there's some use cases that I think people should know about that might not be the primary marketing targets. At yeah, least. I, I think, I mean, obviously there's a case of one, once you've injured yourself um, and and based on the data that we have around the immobilization that typically comes or the lack of movement and, and lack of stimulus that happens. So that makes perfect sense. Uh, I think what I'm a little bit more interested in than that one is we have this pretty substantial market for joint health products. Um, and you know a lot of those are are preventative, so trying to reduce the decline um, of joint health. And typically, people start using them once they start to get those first niggles, right? Um, but it's back to this, like the importance of muscle and everything that it does for us. So, muscle is our posture, how we stand. It's even our, our faces as well. And actually, a lot of the signs of aging from wrinkling inside is actually losing muscle in the face uh, and, and therefore having the kind of, not having the, the, the skin stretched tense. So I would like to see um, kind of the progress in joint health supplements that, that you know, the joints start to hurt once your muscles have deteriorated so that the, the, the biomechanics of the joint is impaired. So I, with the exception of kind of tears and, and nasty joint injuries, but just in general wear and tear cases, it's not because the joints went first it's because the muscles went first and then the biomechanics were off and joint health started to suffer so you know we we, we know a lot of materials that are used you know be it things like collagens um be it um glucosamines and other ingredients there um, and they're used kind of preventatively but let's take better care of the muscles keep the biomechanics right um and then we'll 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 do great favors and and the prime suspect in terms of the deteriorating biomechanics is generally muscle atrophy in certain muscle groups because they're not being used properly and they're not being engaged properly so again pepto strong is all around uh, not just increasing muscle protein synthesis but the reduction in muscle atrophy muscle breakdown so i'd like to see kind of more proactive movement supplements maybe as opposed to joint health supplements um, and, and I think that's a really, really, really great category, but absolutely. Um, I did break my leg. That's what put my sports career to a very abrupt stop. Um, had I known about PeptoStrong at the time or did it, had it existed at the time, because it didn't, uh, I'd definitely be using it. So, um, it's just, um, it's a little bit of a niche application and, um, certainly, you know, I'm sure there's very highly paid athletes who, um, it's, it's, you know, very economically makes a lot of sense to get them back into action as soon as possible. Um, but, um, but it's, it's, yeah, I mean, we'd obviously rather everyone just stays fit, healthy and, and doesn't have that type of injury. Okay. I, I, so one thing that we, you kind of glossed over and, uh, I'm wondering if you know anything about is we, we got into glucose disposal really quickly. Do you have any inkling of ideas or data or, uh, ideas about whether or not this may support glucose disposal? Cause it, um, so it's an area we're really interested in, but we'll pro probably come about or come at it from a different direction as a neurotas business. So the comment I was making at the time was that muscle is our, you know, along with the liver, it is our, our reservoir of glucose. And um, if we've got lots of muscle tissue and we're using it, then we typically handle glucose very, very effectively because it's got a place to go. We don't want glucose in the blood. We want it stored away nicely. So particularly after training with a high amount of muscle people are going to you know mm -hmm. not not have big problems with glucose um however glucose management 
glucose disposal is a huge issue for a lot of people. So we, we're going to we're going to look at that and we're going to come back with something a, a little bit different, a little bit special for that, I hope. OK, <laughs> sounds like you're already in there because, yeah, it seemed like part of the maybe a part of a potential mechanism is that you're you're loading this stuff in better. So I would I would be curious if the next study this is my my ask. Um in the next study, analyze some of that stuff as well. Like see how the, the blood sugar is, uh, is moving between placebo and Pepti strong, but yeah, course, well, yeah, then the one comment that. to that would be that, um, in the, in the study that we did and, and the meal, they're not, we're not feeding the Pepti strong with, you know, a carbohydrate load or, or anything along those lines. So some of those, uh, myokines, uh, do get involved in terms of the, um, the kind of the request from the, the muscle cells for glucose. Right. But it's not like it, we've been feeding this with a giant carbohydrate load uh, and it's helped shuttling large amounts of glucose in. So we're, when we're looking at that, we're not really thinking, again, it's back to that kind of that um, kind of commonly held view of recovery is in terms of muscle, you know, some protein for, for repair and some replace for glycogen that's being used. There we're kind of more thinking about the, the, the glucose being used as the energy source of the cell for its cellular processes as opposed to glycogen replenishment. So, um, so, so yeah, it's not being fed with glucose and just helping that be more effective. It's, it's really this straight into the, um, into instructing the muscle and signaling to the muscle as to, um, what, what processes it needs to carry out. Well, I think we're good to go, but Neil, usually we ask this at the, usually we ask this at the beginning, but it's saying, it seems like you've been around for a while. We have lots of like story time here as well. So like, can you, can you tell us a little bit about your career? Were you with? Glambia or Optimum Nutrition is that what it sounds like? Yeah. Or? So um, in, in, in my in my absolute youth, I started um, working with Europe's largest sports nutrition company, which is a company called Maxi Muscle. Um, so I started in sports nutrition in 1999. Uh, I went to them um, actually while I was still at high school and started to because I was playing rugby, uh, uh, wanting to to try and make a career out of that. So using some sports nutrition products, and then ended up. Uh, Buying a bunch and, and um, selling on to to my friends who who wanted to see what what I was uh, buying, using, and taking in the days when sports nutrition was really uh, uh, not common uh, use or seen at all. Um, I studied nutrition, so my interests were were food, eating, and um, rugby. So I went to university to combine the two, which was 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 to start playing rugby at a at a, at a higher level, and the area of, of interest i was going to study geography uh, which would have been a big big mistake but this new subject came out which was nutrition not dietetics which didn't take my interest uh, but nutrition long before there was instagram tiktok and everyone everywhere felt that they were some form of nutritional expert so i, I dived into that absolutely loved it and um kind of came out from university and went straight to the the company who's um nutrition products I'd been um, been using and uh, and selling on. And I worked with all the sponsors that uh, we worked with. So this was some um, premiership football teams, uh, rugby union and rugby league um, premiership teams, uh, British heavyweight boxing champion, a few uh, British celebrities, so all sorts of people teaching them about general nutrition, but also how supplements could play a role within within general nutrition as well. So so this was like pretty, pretty early days in European sports nutrition. That company ultimately went the way of quite a few legacy sports nutrition businesses, got acquired by a very big pharma company and, and, and then kind of became less relevant, uh, had more red tape and, and a few other things. But but after that moved to, to, to Glambia, 
who um, who were buying up a, a range of different sports nutrition brands at that time, but also um, the, if not one of the world's largest producers of, of whey protein globally. So uh, so been around the, the protein and the sports world for, for, for quite some time, played some semi-professional sport uh, along the way in terms of, of, of rugby, uh, but it's always just been a category that I've, I've, I've loved. Um, even though I use a lot less products than I than I would have done in the past, um, I'm always interested. Always want to um, experiment in terms of what's new and, and how it makes me feel, which which sounds to be very similar to, to to you both as well. All right, Neil. So thank you again. But the last the last question we got to leave with is how do we uh, how do we follow you and your company? Great. Um, so people can uh, go to www.neurotas.com where they'll see a lot on our pipeline and a lot of our news releases clinical will be published there as as they come forward as well or the announcement of publications uh, also on linkedin where we're very active as well so um we we have look forward and welcome anyone to to keep an eye on what we've got coming down excellent thank you so much for your time great thanks, thanks ben thanks mike great to speak to you